future resurrection and in honor of the reading of God's word, I ask that you stand as we read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. There are at least three reasons why this account is is included in the book of Acts. One is it's an introduction to Stephen and Philip. Two, it's the first instance of an intra-church squabble, an intra-church quarreling between the members. And three, it gives us a picture of early church organization, how it is they divided labor and handled this issue. With regard to the introduction of Stephen and Philip, we must note that Stephen is portrayed by Luke as a Christ-like figure, modeling how we can be Christ-like. Remember, the book of Acts is about the body of Christ, doing the work of Christ, Through the spirit of Christ, and we should be the body of Christ doing the work of Christ through the spirit of Christ. And in fact, as we read through Acts, you know that it's a lot of people call it the Acts of the Apostles. But really, it's the Holy Spirit who is the prime mover throughout the book. So with regard to Stephen, I want us to think about a couple of things. One is um, that he's portrayed as a Christ-like figure, but keeping in mind that the Spirit is the prime mover in the book. So with Stephen specifically, he's described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And we'll discuss in a bit Luke's theme and the motif of filling generally and filling of the Holy Spirit specifically. But with Stephen as a Christ-like figure, remember Luke chapter 4, just as Jesus is about to go into the wilderness, he's led by the, by the Spirit to go into the wilderness for the temptation, Luke describes Jesus as being full of the Spirit. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. We are all to be led by the Spirit of God. Paul would later write to the church at Rome, as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And so we should all be like Christ in this way, full of faith and the Holy Spirit being led by his spirit to do the will of God. So one way Stephen is like Christ is that he's full of the Holy Spirit. Another way we're going to find out, and we'll touch on this next week, 
The accusations against Stephen mirror the accusations against Jesus. Remember, ultimately, Jesus is put to death under the allegation that he's preaching against the temple and against the law, and that's the allegation against Stephen. We also may note that, like Christ, Stephen is a great preacher. Probably the two best sermons in the Bible are the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. The three best sermons in Acts, the most complete sermons, and they're they're just beautiful, and I would encourage you to read them sometime if you want to see what great preaching ought to look like, is uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Paul's first sermon in Acts 13, and then Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, and Stephen's sermon's the best one. It's, It's the best of the bunch. And so like Christ, Stephen is a great preacher of God's word. For we may note that supernatural events accompany the death of both Stephen and Christ. And so with Luke's gospel, when Christ is crucified, the whole land goes dark and the veil of the temple is rent in two. When Stephen dies, it is not darkness that covers, but it is actually light. It's the glory of God being revealed and the heavens open up and Stephen sees Christ standing victorious at the right hand of God. So the heavens are open, the light shines, and then Stephen, just like Christ, asks forgiveness for those who are killing him. So where Jesus says, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do, Stephen asks the Lord not to hold this sin against his killers. Another reason Luke wants to introduce us to Stephen is because Stephen's death directly leads to the disciples scattering from Jerusalem. And this, in part, is how the Great Commission is fulfilled and the promise of Christ. They go immediately after Stephen dies. All the disciples, everyone but the apostles, go throughout all Judea and Samaria. And you'll recall in Acts chapter 1, you have the risen Christ speaking with the apostles. And the apostles ask him a question. They say, is it now that you're returning the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responds, you know, typical fashion. It's kind of cryptic, but it makes sense as you read through the book of Acts. Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to do what? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, and in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Well, they're not doing that yet in Acts. They don't, they don't go past Jerusalem at this point. It's not until Stephen is killed that the disciples scatter out and go to Judea and Samaria, which leads us to Philip and the introduction of him, why it's important that we know who he is. Because it is Philip who is the first missionary. He goes to Samaria and, and, and the Samaritans are converted en masse. And he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch and later in, in chapter 8 of the book of Acts. And then later he's actually referred to not as Philip the deacon, but as Philip the evangelist. Once you get to chapter 21 and Paul is staying with him in Caesarea. And I have to say, hopefully we have a pastor by the time I'm there because... Philip has four daughters who are prophetesses, and I I really don't want to talk about that. I don't want to get fired from this really high-paying gig. 
And so these two great men of God, they're, they're outstanding preachers. And you have the first martyr among them and you have the first missionary among them. And they're introduced to us, not in some grand scope, not in some grand terms, but they're introduced to us as two of seven men that this church believed would be ideal in a ministry to widows. In other words, like Christ, they come to us first as humble servants. So one, Luke wants to introduce us to Philip and Stephen. Two, this is the first dispute within the church. This is the first time the church is really squabbling with each other. And so I want you to think about how both silly and wicked this is in light of what we've seen in Acts thus far. So in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. This is after uh, Peter and John have healed the crippled man in Solomon's portico. 5,000 people are converted. And then the Sadducees, the high priests, arrest Peter and John. Then you see tragedy strike within the church in Acts chapter 5. There's not really a quarrel among people, but God strikes down Ananias and Sapphira for withholding that which was supposed to be devoted to God. And you read that fear comes upon the whole congregation after that, but more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Then later in chapter 5, all 12 apostles get arrested. They're all preaching at Solomon's portico. The church members stay home because they know if they go there, they're going to get arrested. But the apostles go. They get arrested. They're brought before not, not just the high priest this time. They're brought before the whole Sanhedrin. This means Pharisee and Sadducee working together to persecute these men of God. The apostles are beaten And they're released, and we read, they left the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It's right after that, right after the church is displaying itself successful, right after the church is displaying itself to be impervious to uh, the persecution of wicked men in Jerusalem, right at the time that the church seems to be victorious, that Satan, spirit of wickedness, selfishness, whatever, is causing people in the church to be cross with one another. And it relates of all things... The widows. We're going to have a fight about which widows in the church we're going to feed. Now, when the church feeds the poor, it is doing the work of Christ to magnify his name. And I want us to think about the ways in which in Scripture we see God manifesting his glory by feeding people. Jeffrey, is this mic on? It is, I have to tell you, it is where this one right here. Okay. I have to tell you the sound is so funky up here compared to how it usually is. And I'm just wildly distracted. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get past it and move through it. So just pardon me if I'm getting some background noise. But I want us to think about how God displays his goodness to his people through food. Okay? So think about in the garden. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden. There's the tree of life. We, of course, know about the manna in the wilderness when uh, the children of Israel have escaped Egypt en route to the promised land. 
We have the beautiful story of the bread and oil with Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. And, of course, Jesus' miraculous feedings in the gospel. Uh, And Luke actually links the feeding of the 5,000 with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And these are, of course, big, miraculous displays of God's provision. But Jesus calls on all of us to engage in simple ministries like feeding the poor. At the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse, which... I don't know if you've read it lately. It is mostly about warning and judgment. Jesus says this. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats On the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was what? Hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And Jesus, as you know, couples that promise with a dire warning. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. And you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. And you did not welcome me. Naked. And you did not clothe me. Sick. And in prison. And you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying. Lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty. Or a stranger or sick or in prison. And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them. Truly I say to you. As you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so we are to display our Christianness, our Christ likeness by, among other things, feeding the poor. And I want you to think about the story in Acts and the devilish perniciousness that's there, because the disciples in that moment, they're taking both sides of the equation. They're feeding the poor. They're feeding the widows and They're not feeding the widows. They are at one moment displaying their sheep and goats. Twice we've read in Acts in chapter 2 and chapter 4 that all the disciples are selling all of their belongings and they're bringing the proceeds and laying it at the apostles' feet. And we don't see that again in the book of Acts, and it's probably a sermon for another day, and I don't know if that's 
because that sort of thing was just necessary in Jerusalem, given the culture, or if it was an economic experiment that didn't work out or whatever. But what we know is people are making great sacrifice. When you convert to Christianity in Jerusalem in the year 35, you're taking a personal risk. You're putting your life at risk. You're putting your livelihood at risk. You're putting your relationship with your family at risk. And you're doing that because you've been convinced that Jesus is the Christ. And now one group in the church is pitted against another about food to widows. The Hellenists are Greek speaking Jews. They, their ancestors would have been dispersed and from Jerusalem, from Judea in one of the prior invasions that Israel often succumbed to. And either they or perhaps their parents or grandparents came back from abroad, maybe from Egypt, maybe from Babylon or, or wherever, and they speak Greek. And they're Jewish religiously, but culturally they're Greek. And the people described in our text as Hebrews, they speak Aramaic. But importantly, they probably consider themselves to be more Jewish than the Greek-speaking Jews. They consider themselves a little better because they didn't assimilate into Greek culture. And they would have considered themselves to be holier in some way than the Greek-speaking Jews. So think about how divisive this is. You've sold all the property you had. You come and you bring the proceeds. You lay it at the apostles' feet. And then this happens. And this sort of abuse could easily embitter you, not just the widows, but everybody in the congregation. And the divisiveness along cultural lines, like I said, wouldn't be linked to the widows only, but the Hellenist families, whose side are they going to take in this argument? Feed, feed the Greek-speaking widows. And maybe, just maybe, the Hebrew families, not the widows, but everybody else, maybe they're saying, you know what, I think we should give preference to the Hebrews. And so everybody is pitted one against the other. And as you know, churches have broken up over far simpler controversies than that. And in this controversy, the, the dispute between the feeding of Hebrew widows versus Hellenist widows, this is the seed this is why it's so important. It is the seed for virtually every other intra-church controversy in the book of Acts. So in Acts, think, think about this. In Acts 10, you have Peter's vision of the four-cornered sheet. And he sees Miss Piggy and Jesus says, take and eat. He says, no. He says, Arnold, take and eat. No. He's Porky, take and eat. No, I wouldn't do that. And then Jesus tells him that all food is clean. Don't say anything I've created is unclean. And then there's a knock on the door. And who is it? Some Gentiles from Cornelius' house say, come to Cornelius' house. He's had this vision. And he goes, and then the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius, and Peter has this awakening. But then the next chapter, chapter 11, Peter gets back to Jerusalem, and he's confronted by Judaizers who accuse him of what? Eating with Gentiles. You're not Jewish enough, Peter. You're eating with these Gentiles. And he tells the whole story again. If you read Acts 10 and Acts 11, they're almost identical chapters. He just, Luke just retells the story as Peter is telling the story to the Judaizers. And so at the conclusion of Peter relaying what happened at Cornelius' house, the Judaizers, it says, they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
Then later in Acts 11, men from Cyprus and Cyrene are at the church at Antioch, and they begin bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. This leads to the church at Antioch sending Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey and reporting back at the end of chapter 14 about how God had opened a door of faith, they say, to the Gentiles. And then chapter 15 opens with Judaizers coming down again from Jerusalem to Antioch saying, you know what, you got to circumcise these guys. They want them to pass through Judaism to get to Christianity. This, of course, leads to the Jerusalem Council. It leads really to the writing of Galatians, which is likely written in while Paul's en route to the Jerusalem Council, where Paul writes, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the Jerusalem Council declares that Gentiles don't have to pass through Judaism to be a Christian. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. And the issue doesn't die there. As as late as chapter 21, Paul is in Jerusalem. And he sees the apostle, he sees James, the brother of Christ. And James says, hey, listen, we got a lot of guys in this church who are upset that you're preaching against the law and saying people don't have to be circumcised. And then Paul darn near gets killed trying to placate some people. And all of that begins right here with a fight about what widows in the church are getting food. The widows who are a little too Greek or a little too Hebrew, who are we going to feed? And the church could not survive and advance throughout the world unless this issue was resolved. How, how can you have a worldwide kingdom made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation if a single ethnic group can't treat people right because one part of them has committed the sin of speaking Greek? And so, what do they do? Just to show that they're Baptists? Well, they'd already shown they're Baptists because they're having a fight about food. (laughs) But to show that it is FBC Jerusalem, they appoint some deacons. And I've called them proto-deacons. It's kind of the first iteration of it because the word deacon is not found in the text. But the apostles called together the full number of the disciples. Now, I want you to think about how many people this is in Jerusalem at this time. How many people are saved at Pentecost? Do you know? 3,000. How many are saved at the temple after Peter heals the crippled man? All right, that's eight. And then after Ananias and Sapphira, when they go back to the temple, the disciples are preaching again. We read that more more than ever, believers are being added to the Lord. So let's just call it more than 10,000 people. Okay? They call over 10,000 people together, and they say, pick seven guys. I mean, that's an expression of faith. And so the, this congregation of over 10,000 people, they can't agree on what widows to feed, but they could agree on these seven men. And he tells them, pick seven men of good repute, men who have a good reputation, men who are full of the spirit, men who are full of wisdom. And why do they do that? The apostles have to be devoted to the preaching of the word and to prayer. And of course, we don't have apostles now. Uh, But this does display a good proper ordering of church leadership where you should have some men devoted to preaching and prayer for the congregation. And you should have have others devoted to meeting the physical needs of of the church. And in fact, the primary distinction Paul makes in his qualifications of elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, the primary difference between the two is the skill of teaching and bringing God's word. So they're to have a good reputation and, but they're not just supposed to be capable of delivering food. They have to be full of the spirit. They have to be full of wisdom. 
And I think it's a good time to remind ourselves of Luke's motif of filling, both in the, gospel, in, in the book of Acts and in the Gospels generally. But in Acts, this is what we've seen. And I, I think this, is, this will enrich your reading of the book of Acts through your life. Luke often describes things as being filled. So at Pentecost, a sound like a mighty rushing wind fills the room. All the disciples at Pentecost are filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, right before he's put on trial in Acts chapter 4, right before he preaches his third sermon, we read that he's filled with the Spirit. The disciples are all filled with the Holy Spirit after they pray for boldness, after Peter and John are released from prison. Ananias, of course, is filled with deceit before he's killed. The high priest is filled with jealousy before he arrests all the apostles because Jerusalem is filled with the apostles' teaching. And now it's time to appoint seven men full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And then Stephen is specifically described as being full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And so what does it mean? What does Luke mean when he says, Full of the Spirit. We've addressed this before, but full of the Spirit does not mean saved. Peter's not going to say appoint seven saved men. If you're a member of FBC Jerusalem, the presumption is that you're saved. When Peter says, when, when, when Luke writes that they're to be full of the Holy Spirit and faith, we need to look at the way in which Luke uses that phrase. So John the Baptist is described, for instance, as being filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That's in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth, when she's with her cousin Mary, is filled with the Holy Spirit when she says, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed art the fruit of thy womb. Zechariah is then filled with the Spirit once John the Baptist is born, and he delivers his great prophecy about a sunrise that shall visit us from on high. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus is full of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, just before he goes to the, to the wilderness to be tempted. And we're not going to say that that means Jesus was saved in that moment. The disciples are filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. They're saved before the day of Pentecost. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit before, after his first arrest. He was saved before his first arrest. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit when they pray for boldness. They were already saved. Paul's filled with the Spirit when the scales fall from his eyes in Acts chapter 9. And Paul is filled with the Spirit on his first missionary journey just before he strikes a man with blindness. And the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and joy at the end of Acts chapter 13. So what is it? Luke uses that term in two ways. One is to show that God is empowering you for a specific moment, a critical moment in your ministry. And he also uses it as a general term to describe someone who's mature in the faith. And so with Stephen, we have both of those. So when the apostles say, pick out seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, they're really telling the church, pick out seven men who are mature in the faith, seven men who you know love the Lord and love God's people. But then when you read, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Luke is also telling you that God is girding him up for a specific moment that we're about to read about. Later, Paul calls on all of us to be filled with the Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
So we are all called to be full of the spirit and display godliness in our daily lives. If we were to ask Sylvania Church to appoint men who are full of the spirit. They better have a tough time choosing because you are all called to be full of the spirit in your daily lives. We should also note that how these men are commissioned in the diaconate here in Jerusalem. They're commissioned by the laying on of hands. And this is how the Bible, generally speaking, describes conveying authority. And so if you think about Numbers chapter 8, when the priests are being consecrated, that happens through the laying on of hands, among other things. When power is transferred or authority is transferred from Moses to Joshua, that happens in Numbers 27 through the laying on of hands. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to see that Paul and Barnabas are sent out as missionaries and the church comes and lays hands on them. Nothing magical happens. but The church lays hands on them to display you are going out with the authority of Christ and his church to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to all men. So essentially, the laying on of hands here in Acts chapter 6 gives these men the imprimatur of the apostles as they take over this critical ministry. The, The church needs to know that these seven men have authority to do what they're going to do to make sure that the food distribution among the widows is done rightly and in a godly way. Another reason we have this text is to show us some church organization. So here, so, you know, in the scary words of a Baptist preacher at the moment, here's some thoughts about deacons. Um, Acts, the book of Acts, wonderfully shows us some early ministries of the church. So before there's a problem, there's obviously a food ministry that's happening at the church. You can tell by the fact that all the disciples are just bringing all their money and laying it at the apostles' feet, that they're spreading out money and goods to help people in the congregation. In Acts chapter 9, you can see what a lot of people think is an early iteration of kind of an order of widows where women have devoted themselves to Christ and service in the church. In Acts 11, you see famine relief coming from Antioch to Jerusalem after the prophecy by Agabus. And in this text, we have an early form, the earliest form of deacons. Now, the Greek term for deacon, I'm going to butcher it, is diakonos. It isn't used here. But Paul would later use that term to describe this sort of person. And diakonos simply means servant. And importantly, in 1 Timothy 3, we find the only use of that term de- translated deacon in the English Bible. So if you, have, if you have an English Bible in front of you, that's the one you're using. You're prob- if you look in a concordance at the word deacon, you're probably only going to see that in 1 Timothy 3. But it's kind of a cop-out. It's a transliteration. The word diakonos is translated many times in the New Testament as servant or minister. But in 1 Timothy 3, the English translators translated as deacon... They just transliterate the Akinos to deacon to show you that it's used in a slightly different way in 1 Timothy 3. It's used as an office. Now, it's not the same type of cop-out that baptizo gets. The reason, you know, the reason that baptizo isn't just translated immerse in your Bible is because they don't want the controversy, so they just transliterate it into baptize. But here, like the real reason that in your English Bible, 1 Timothy 3 has it as deacon is by the time you get an English Bible, there is this group of people called deacon. And you get it from 1 Timothy 3. So there's pretty clearly an office there. And 1 Timothy 3 lays out the general qualifications of a deacon. So turn with me just real quick. Bible drill, 1 Timothy 3. 
Let's see if I can find it. I'm going to read what Paul writes a deacon ought to be. And in most jobs in the world, president, okay, where law school qualifies you to hold the nuclear codes. But for deacons, you can see the, the qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 through verse 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They can't be shaky. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11 has a controversial translation. I use the ESV. It says their wives. If you have an NASB, it will say women. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so you can see that those qualifications show that this is the type of person who will glorify Christ in all that he does and be a man the congregation can trust with its resources to minister to others. Now, as many of you know, there's a debate among Christians as to whether women can be ordained to the office of deacon. We actually went over this in my Sunday school class in 2019. We did a three-week study, I think, on deacons. And, and, I, and here's my perspective on that, because um, I, I can't get fired. Uh, my, and this is be a total punt. It's a close call, and reasonable people can disagree. That's my perspective. We took a poll in my class in 2019. Uh, there were 24 people who voted in that poll. Uh, very informal, and 10 people said yes, and 10 people said no, but it's 24, right? There were four seminarians. The four seminarians all said yes, they could be, but that's not dispositive. There are some great men of God, men who are titans in the Reformed faith who hold that women may be ordained as deacons. B.B. Warfield, the great 19th century Princeton theologian, um, says that. John Piper, Tim Keller, the majority reformed view would be that they cannot be. The arguments that they can be are threefold. One, deacons don't really hold authority within the church. Two, there's some play in how that 1 Timothy 3 section is translated, whether it should be women or wives, specifically whether the certain word, it's G-Y-N-E, it would be pronounced gune. Do you pronounce that women or wives there? And then three, Phoebe is described as a diakonos at the end of Romans in, in Romans chapter 16. She's the one who... Paul has delivered the letter to the church at Rome. Now, if this is the sort of question that really interests you, I encourage you to be a Berean, study the word. You can read as many articles as you want about it and study it prayerfully. And I've spent a lot of hours on the issue. And I, I'm, frankly, I'm unconvinced that women should be ordained as deacons. But I just want to explain why, because I think this issue will come up in the future. With regard to the Greek term gune, it's translated many times in the New Testament as woman, and it's translated many times in the New Testament as wife. And so when you read somebody writing about this issue as to whether uh, women should be deacons and they get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, what happens is people kind of confirm their own priors a lot of times. 
And so if you think that women should be ordained as deacons, you will scoff at the idea it should be translated wives there. And if you think women should not be ordained as deacons, you're just offended that somebody would dare translate it as women. And so what happens is you come into this with a sort of eisegesis, a reading into the text, instead of an exegesis, reading out of the text. And then it really comes down to Phoebe. Benjamin Warfield in the 19th century said the whole question comes down to Phoebe in Romans 16. And she is described as a diakonos of the church of Sincrae. And I've read a lot about it. And I've read a lot of debate about Miss Phoebe. And it comes down to, is that simply a description of her as a servant of that church, or is that an official title? And I have to tell you that Paul uses the word diakonos both ways. Sometimes he'll use it as a title, and sometimes he'll use it simply as servant. So I'm going to give you three people in the book of Romans about whom the word diakonos is used. Are you ready for this? It's the only three people in the book of Romans about whom Paul uses the word diakonos. Jesus, Caesar, and Phoebe. So the word isn't really dispositive. Now, they're all different contexts. I'll give you that. So, and then you can see in Colossians, Paul will use the word diakonos to refer to Epaphras or refer to Tychicus. And even in 1 Timothy 4, Paul will use the term diakonos to refer to Timothy in the context not of serving as a deacon like we think of it, but in the terms of preaching and teaching the word. Which is all to say that people of goodwill can disagree. And that ultimately, whether Phoebe was a deacon in the sense that we use that term, or whether she was simply a faithful and loving servant of Christ's church, or for that matter, whether Epaphras was or Tychicus was, in the end, it is a tertiary issue at best. As we saw, the term diakonos simply means servant, and we're all called to be servants, man and woman, young and old. And I think that at this time in our church's history, that Sylvania needs a robust deacon's ministry. It's something we've been lacking. And if there's ever a moment where we could use it, now is that moment. And I believe there will come a time in the near future where we'll ask the congregation for help in appointing men full of the spirit and wisdom to help minister to our widows and our poor and our aged and our infirm. And when that happens, hopefully some men will be ordained as deacons, but other people, all other people, will be called upon to be servants, ordained or not, men or women. In Mark's gospel, we read that the apostles were arguing, as they often did, but in this instance, they were arguing about who was the greatest among them. We read that Jesus sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be what? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant, diakonos, to all. So while only some may be called and ordained as part of the diaconate, we are all called to be the body of Christ, doing the work of Christ through the spirit of Christ. And just like in Acts, at the conclusion of the story, the result of living out that calling in our congregation will be the word of God continuing to increase and the number of disciples being multiplied greatly. Let us pray.
Father, thank you for your holy and precious word. Thank you for this story of an early church controversy that it may guide us and give us wisdom and insight as to how you would have your church run and how you would have us minister to the poor in our own congregation, those people who need help. Move us to have the assurance that when we do that, we are ministering not only to those people, but also to you, also to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that at the end, the king may say to us that when he was hungry, we fed him. Lord, give us peace and give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in His wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely dim In the light of His glory King 
tongue will shout all glory to Jesus alone. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our prize. We adore you. Behold you, our Savior ever true. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our prize. We adore you. Amen. It's been a great day so far, a great morning so far, and now we have the opportunity to uh, encourage some young families. So if you're participating in our baby dedication, if you could go ahead and come on up and get ready to say all, because it's, it's really adorable. No, oh, no, no, there's more. <laughs> there's more. As the rest of them come up, I really enjoy this time when we do it a few times a year because it's a chance and an opportunity for us as a, as a church body and a family to rally around and support, encourage, and pray for those that have recently welcomed new members of their family into their home. And, and, and as a church, it's part of our responsibility to encourage these families and, and, and come alongside them and, and, and help train. And so it's an opportunity for us as a church to commit to doing that as well. And I'm reminded of Psalm 127 where it tells us that, that children are a heritage from the Lord. And Psalm 139.